Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the latest on the environmental and especially the human toll of producing all those batteries that power our daily lives. And I'm talking about the batteries in your smartphone in your laptop, and especially in your electric vehicle. The rare minerals and chemicals that go into producing these batteries, we've talked a lot about this on the show in the past, and we're, today we're going to focus on cobalt and how it's being mined in the Congo. I got Siddharth Kara standing by, the author of the, the great new book, Cobalt Red. Let's have a listen first, though, to this report from CBS News. They're digging in trenches and laboring in lakes, hunting for treasure in a playground from hell. Hard enough for an adult man, unthinkable for a child. And yet tens of thousands of Congolese kids are involved in every stage of mining for cobalt. Women and children are doing so-called artisanal mining. But don't be fooled, this is no quaint cottage industry. At barely 10 years old, children lug heavy sacks of cobalt to be washed in rivers. From as early as four, they can pick it out of a pile. And even those too young to work spend much of the day breathing in toxic fumes. Okay, this issue receiving a lot more attention right now. And it's largely thanks to my next guest, Siddharth Kara, the author of the, the terrific new book I highly recommend to you, Cobalt Red. How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. This book is absolutely on fire. New York Times bestseller. Very pleased to welcome Siddharth to the show. Siddharth, thank you very much for coming on today. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you bet. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. This book is incredible, and I'm congratulations on all the success you're having with it. First, let's talk a little bit about how you got on to this topic. How did this journey start for you? Of course. Well, I've been researching slavery and child labor for more than two decades. And about six or seven years ago, colleagues in the field started talking to me about cobalt, the cobalt's in the batteries, it's mined in the Congo. The conditions are horrible. So I took my first trip there in 2018, and I indeed uncovered what was just an appalling human rights catastrophe at the bottom of the rechargeable economy. Yeah, and I've seen some of the videos that you've taken yourself. And could you paint a little word picture here for the listeners about what this is like? Because I think when some people think about child child labor, maybe they're thinking about some kids in, in a small strip mine or something. I mean, we're talking about thousands of people in, in these open pit mines. Yeah, we're talking the utter degradation of human beings. Uh, I took numerous trips. Every time I went to the Congo, I peeled back deeper and deeper into the human degradation. It's like dialing back the moral clock centuries to colonial times where 
Uh, human beings are being used for brute labor. They toil in utterly hazardous conditions for a dollar or two a day. And we have to recall that almost three-fourths of the world's supply of cobalt is mined in the Congo. So it, yeah. people like you and I, we cannot conduct our daily lives without this cobalt. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, this is this is the kind of the uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. That's where this cobalt is largely concentrated here, right? So most of the most of the world's cobalt comes from this one confined area, correct? Yes, that's right. A small yeah. patch of the southeastern part of the country. There's more cobalt there than in the rest of the planet combined, and it's being mined in utterly hazardous conditions that are contemptuous for the dignity of the people living there and utterly destructive for the environment around them. So would you be, would you say it's safe to say that for everyone listening right now, you know, the smartphone they have in their pocket, the the laptop computer I'm looking at right now, that it, the, the batteries in there contain cobalt from the Congo. It's almost all but a certainty. I mean, if you yeah. think 3 fourths of the world's supply is coming from the Congo, we can't get through our daily lives without relying on Congolese cobalt. Right. So let's talk about the, the conditions here. Like, what did you witness? You've seen this up close yourself. You've traveled to this area many times. Can you describe what, what these conditions are like for people? Well, there are tens of thousands of children, hundreds of thousands of some of the poorest people in the world, toiling with pickaxes, shovels, stretches of rebar in toxic pits and trenches, sometimes crammed by the thousands inside pits, hammering and clanking uh, at, at stone to get cobalt into sacks and feed it up the supply chain. Thousands of women with young babies strapped to their backs. Cobalt is toxic to touch and breathe, so they're all being uh, contaminated each and every day that they're working in these conditions suffering shattered legs, shattered spines, and worst of all, uh, thousands of people have been buried alive in tunnel collapses in the Congo oh. for cobalt. Right. This stuff has been called the blood diamond of batteries. You think that's an accurate descriptor? Uh, no, I think it's actually much worse than that because mm. think about it. You know, we might buy a diamond once or twice in our life. We can't function for 24 hours without Congolese cobalt. So it touches everyone's lives, and the conditions are, again, utterly degrading to the humanity of the people living there. Speaking to Siddharth Kara, his great new book, Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. When we talk about the companies that need this stuff, Siddharth, to make these batteries, we're talking about some of the biggest, most powerful companies in the world. Apple, Microsoft, Tesla... What do these companies say about the conditions that the stuff's being dug out of the ground under here? Well, they uh, refuse to accept responsibility for these conditions. They say it's not in their supply chain. It's in someone else's yeah. supply chain. Well, if none of them are buying this cobalt, then where is it all going? Right. Like I'm looking at some statements that have come up, like for Microsoft, for example. So Microsoft does not tolerate child labor. And its supply chain, we continue to be vigilant in our efforts to address coal mining labor cobalt mining labor practices. Apple, looking at the statement from Apple, Apple deeply committed to the responsible sourcing materials for our products. I mean, how can they say this when you see the 
You see it up close. What's going on in reality? It's, it's utter, utter hypocrisy. This is the, the vapid scribbling of marketing teams uh, in glitzy he- corporate headquarters who have, by the way, never stepped foot themselves in the Congo to see the reality and truth of where their cobalt is coming from. It's just meant to assure shareholders and consumers that our supply chains are clean. And yet not one person from these companies, I dare say, has ever gone to the Congo to see with their own eyes yeah. how these children are, and people are digging their cobalt out of the ground. Is it hard for like a journalist or an outsider, or an activist advocate to get up front and see this stuff in, in person? Like, is there security or, around these areas difficult to access? I know they're very remote areas we're talking, right? It, it, it is indeed challenging. These areas are highly militarized. There's the yeah. Army, there's mining police, Republican Guard, roving militias, because there's so much money at stake. So a journalist can't just walk around with credentials um, and get get the deeper access. Often their trips are curated by the government so they can see no more than what the government might might want them to see. Uh, That's why I took repeated trips blending into the communities to get as deep to the truth as possible. All right, continue my conversation now with Siddharth Kara, author of the book Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives, the cobalt in the ion-lithium battery in your smartphone, your laptop, your EV. And I, and I guess, Siddharth, especially electric vehicles, right? Like as the demand for electric vehicles goes up, countries are bringing in targets to go fully electric like here in canada we've got an official government target to go 100 percent electric vehicle sales by 2035 that's a lot of cobalt that needs to get dug up it's millions of tons of cobalt it's the future projections for ev demand that's really driving this scramble uh, to get cobalt out of the ground under whatever means necessary and feed it up the chain to uh, ev manufacturers to meet these targets that's right yeah, and when you look at, you talked earlier about how most of the cobalt is concentrated in the Congo. Can they not dig this stuff up somewhere else? I know we have some cobalt mining in Canada. Not, it's pretty limited, but do other countries have this have this resource too? There's cobalt in other countries, but if you look at the chart of production, it's Congo around 75%, and then a lot of other countries at 2%, 3% of world supply. There's just not enough other cobalt in the world outside of the Congo to remotely meet future demand being driven, especially by electric vehicles. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about the working conditions for the people, including children who are in these open pits, digging this stuff up by hand. The companies refer to them, and we heard that in that CBS report, as artisanal artisanal miners. That's... um, what does that mean, an artisanal miner? I mean, that conjures up an image of a, a, you know, a guy with a lunch bucket going to work every morning, but that's not the case here. But what, what does that word mean, artisanal miner? Yeah, this is more of the sort of marketing misdirection that's put out at the top of the chain. It's meant to mean individuals who work by hand in pleasing circumstances as opposed to industrial yeah. excavation with excavators and big trucks, but it it belies the reality, which is utter brute degradation of these people. Yeah, I mean, is any of it done mechanically? Do they have have trucks? Do they have equipment? Or is it all done by by hand? No, there's, of course, industrial excavation taking place as well. Uh, It's just an all-out scramble. So the big mines have their tractors and excavators, and they're also using the production of the hundreds of thousands of poor people 
in that part of the country to just scramble this cobalt up the chain as quickly as possible. Yeah, and speaking of that chain, that supply chain, and I read some of the statements from companies like Apple. We, we don't tolerate child slave, child labor for any of the raw materials in our, our supply chain. But is one of the challenges here that the supply chain gets very convoluted and murky and difficult to trace? Like some of the stuff just gets dumped into the supply chain of these companies. You don't know where it came from? Well, that's what happens. You see the artisanal production is mixed with the industrial production before it ever leaves the Congo. But everyone knows that. And so denying that reality is not the solution. You know, just closing your eyes and ears and saying no, no, no doesn't help the Congolese people. The truth is they need to get on the ground, understand the bottom of their supply chain and work to improve conditions. Yeah. Is there any ethically responsibly sourced cobalt available like i've heard this concept of of clean cobalt not this cobalt that's dug up by children in these humility you know, these dehumanizing circumstances but clean cobalt is that is that possible is that available based on everything i've seen there is no such thing as clean cobalt emerging from the democratic republic of the congo cobalt dug in canada or australia or other countries sure uh but uh coming out of the congo it's all mixed yeah. up before you ever leave the country. So no company can reasonably claim that their supply of cobalt is untouched by child labor, environmental destruction, and so on. Right. Okay. The, the picture we painted here obviously is extremely bleak and, and concerning one. So what needs, what needs to get done? Like I think your book, with the reception that it's received, has really sort of put this on the radar for people. What do you think needs, what needs to change here? Number one, we flood the world with truth. All these sort of misrepresentative statements that have been made that uh, deny the truth and suppress the voices of the Congolese people, that has to be replaced with the ground truth spoken from these people. Then the companies at the top of the chain have to acknowledge and accept responsibility for what they've done at the bottom. Demand for cobalt starts at the top. That's where responsibility needs to begin and solutions need to begin. Last question for you, Siddharth. Are electric vehicles still better for the environment than gas-powered vehicles, given everything we're talking about here? I think we do need to pursue climate sustainability goals, but right now that electric vehicle's battery is bathed in the blood uh, of the Congolese people, uh, and that has to be sorted out if this supply chain and our future climate sustainability aspirations are to be uh, achieved with respect and dignity for all people. Yeah. I'll tell you what, your book has certainly got everyone talking. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about some of BC's more dangerous and treacherous highways in the interior, especially. And you take a look at Highway 5 north of Kamloops. And there have been some fatal crashes along this highway recently. Local mayor... Ward Stamer speaking out. He's standing by. Have a listen to this report here from Global News anchor Colleen Christie. Well, one person has been killed and a sizable stretch of Highway 5 just north of Barrier was closed following a crash last night. Police say a semi and pickup truck collided shortly before 8.30 in Darfield. A passenger in the pickup died. The driver was injured. Police are still trying to figure out what led to the crash. Okay, taking a look at some of these recent crashes here. A driver killed, a passenger taken to hospital on February 9th. 
That followed a collision on the highway near Lewis Creek, B.C., two commercial vehicles and a pickup truck. One week later, another driver killed. Two commercial vehicles collided in the same stretch of Highway 5. Let's discuss now with my guest, Ward Stamer, the mayor of Barrier, B.C. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ward, thanks for coming on today. You're welcome. Good morning, Mike. Okay, let's talk about your concerns here. I mean, has this always been a dangerous stretch of road there, or is, there, is it, or is the, are the accident rate picking up lately? Well, we haven't seen the statistics, but I'm pretty sure that the, the, the numbers have been increasing, Mike. And, you know, they've made significant improvements over the years on some of the passing lanes from the end of the freeway in, in Hefley Creek and then heading north. But the biggest challenges we're having right now is in the canyons. That seems to be where we're getting most of the bottlenecks and where we're getting the most treacherous road conditions. And unfortunately, that's where we're having most of the accidents and the fatalities. Where can you, for people who are not familiar with this area, like can you describe where the, the stretch of highway we're talking about, like precisely where it is? Sure. So the Coquihalla Highway, you know, from Vancouver to Kamloops, doesn't have any lights. And once you get to Kamloops, there's a few lights through Kamloops, four lanes to the edge of the municipality, which is Hefty Creek, which is about, I don't know, 15 miles. And then from there north, it's just a two-lane highway all the way up to Belmont, to Jasper, with, a, you know, passing along the way. The biggest, the biggest challenge is, unfortunately, canyons have never ha- had any real serious money spent, not like uh, Hoffman's Bluff on the Trans-Canada Highway 1 just west of Chase. They, uh, they spent millions, hundreds of millions of dollars trying to fix that part of the road because there was always fatalities every year around that area, and they, they've spent a lot of money between Kamloops and Salmon Arc. So on our highway, they've made a few improvements on some of the flatter areas to allow passing lanes. But what also happened a few years ago is they increased the speed limit from 90 kilometers to 100 kilometers. And when they did that, we lost six passing lanes alone from Kamloops to Barrier just because of the increase in speed. So then everything gets bottled up. But, yeah, no, it's something that's been going on for a long time. We've been raising our concerns, and it just seems that it's been culminating this season with some rather nasty accidents and, unfortunately, fatalities to fall. Is this uh, an important route for truck traffic? Because you heard in that report, a lot of these accidents seem to be involved with the commercial vehicles. Oh, it's huge because, I mean, we've got, we've got two major highways in British Columbia, and you know the railways are full. They can't take any more capacity. And we have trucks nonstop almost seven days a week from Vancouver to Edmonton, back and forth. And then if, if you're familiar with all the work that's been going on between Revelstoke and Golden up in the, up on the Highway 1 in Trans-Canada, we've had major detours for months at a time. Plus, we've got the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline coming through here. We've had a, a lot of traffic, Mike. Yeah. Speaking of Ward Stamer, Mayor of Barrier, B.C., talking about Highway 5, some of the recent fatals, accidents along there. Let's talk about some of the things you would like to see. You're, you're advocating for some safety measures. What do you think could be done to improve this? Well, first off, before I went on vacation a couple of weeks ago, we, uh, the council, our council, my council, uh, put forth a resolution that's going to be submitted to SILGA, which is our Southern Tier Local Government Association, for mandatory dash camps. 
since then, we've had really good uh, rapport with everybody on this. We've had Ministry of Transportation, uh, CBSE. We've had, you know, there's been informal polls. One was in Kamloops. I think they had 10,000 people went online and 88% uh, supported it. I think it'd be another tool in the toolbox that we could we could add very quickly. I know there's progressive trucking firms right now that have already implemented dash cams years ago with, with their other e-logs and uh, GPS systems. And I just think it would be an effective way to not only make the truckers more accountable, but also we'd have more anecdotal evidence if we did have a crash to know exactly what happened. So this would be, okay, this is very interesting. So mandatory dash cams for commercial vehicles only? So you're yeah. talking? Yeah. That's right. And how would that... How would that improve things? Like that would what? Because the driver would know everything's being recorded. The driver wouldn't be less tempted to take risks, or what? Well, I, would, I suppose it would also probably be able to show driving habits as well. That would maybe make them not drive right down the center of of the road. And I know I had a chat with with Minister Fleming the other day, and if we did this, it would be the very first jurisdiction in North America to actually implement a mandatory dash cam system, but. Let's face it, Mike, we've got challenging road systems throughout our province that are probably unlike a lot of other areas and not like other areas. And I'm sure that if the government wanted to jump on board with something like this, you could do something like a a 5% reduction in insurance rates for any, any trucking firm that decided to get on it right now. It may take a year or more for the legislation, but... According to uh, the head of the pre- president of the BC Trucking Association, Mr. Earl, he already said that probably half the trucks already have dash cams in them, and he doesn't mm-hmm. have a problem with them being mandatory. So I don't see any reason why we couldn't move forward with this. I know Minister Fleming is meeting with his his uh, provincial counterparts across Canada next week. I've just been looking at the new eggs coming up through on the National Safety Bulletin with the e-logs that, as you're familiar with, are, are, have been started as of January 1st, and they will be law as of uh, July 1st. And that's just another way of being able to try to monitor these trucks, make sure that drivers aren't driving too long. Uh, they're talking about implementing speed uh, limiters. That was another thing that Minister uh, Fleming mentioned about. And there's a lot of things that are in, in play right now, but I'm just looking at something that we can do rather quickly and not have to wait six months or a year. Okay, tell me about the e-logs. How, how is that going to work? Well, the e-log is going to be, uh, it's an electronic log. It's shared information between provinces. And what it does is it limits the amount of hours that a driver can drive in a truck at one time. Mm. That's accumulated time. Between 13 and 14 hours. They can't, I'm just looking through the regs, they can't go past 14 hours. And that's causing other problems now because now all of a sudden these trucks are running out of time and they're almost driving and, and parking on the side of the road. We're looking at possibly starting a new truck stop in Barrier because this happens to be a place where they seem to be running out of time, and it looks like there's going to be a real need for these places for drivers to be actually be able to drive to and be able to park for the eight hours and then get back on the road. Of course, there's always people that would think, well, maybe they'll try to speed up to get to these points. But again, if they've got limiters on them, that makes it a lot more difficult for them uh- to speed. How would okay? How would a speed limiter work? That would make it what physically Im- impossible for a truck to go yeah. over a certain speed limit. Yeah, most of the new trucks now with the computerized system that they have in their engines, they could they could be implemented tomorrow. They could put it. They could put a speed. And some of the companies, I know Aero Trucking, for example, they have speed limiters on their trucks already. They cannot go past a certain speed. It's impossible. Wow. And that's the thing that 
be done very easily as well. And I believe Minister Fleming is trying to get that implemented as well, is for us to make that lawful that, you know, that these trucks can only go so fast. Hey, Ward, you've driven a lot of these highways in the in the interior and all over our province. Like when you take a look at some of the more treacherous stretches of road and highway in, in B.C., we're talking Highway 5 right now, but are there, others, are there other areas, other highways that jump out at you as being particularly treacherous? Well, in our region, Mike, there's quite just about every single highway has their choke points. You know, 5A, the, the old highway between Kamloops and Merritt, they're still using big trucks like, like lumber trucks on that. That's impacting the local residents because there's lots of windy, twisty corners on, the, on that highway. I remember driving on Highway 3 from Princeton to Hope when, when we had the, those floods in 2021. I mean, anybody from the coast that's ever taken that highway, they know how treacherous some of those parts of that highway can be. And those areas that we're talking about are very expensive to fix. They're usually, you know, they're using rock faces. We're talking, you know, tens, twenties, hundreds of millions of dollars of fixing some of these sections. That's why I've been asking in the past, for particularly in our highway, to maybe have a couple of speed uh, speed quarters, variable speed quarters. So in those those bottleneck areas, when the conditions are poor, that you know, bad weather, slippery conditions, we could drop the speed limit to 80, and then we could enforce it. Because right now, having it set at 100, the police can't really enforce it unless you have a crash. And that's another thing that I wanted to quickly talk about before we get too carried away here, is I was on the phone with Mayor Blackwell this morning, and I want to thank uh, both Ministry of Transportation and the CBSE for the increase in enforcement that we've had on our highways in the last five or six days after the last fatal. I mean, it's significantly slowed the traffic down. But however, every other day, it seems like the RCMP wants to pull the Highway Patrol uh, Division out of Clearwater, and that's something that we just can't have. We need a commitment from the RCMP to continue to have that highway uh, office in Clearwater, which also serves barriers, serves up towards Valmont. We need a commitment from the RCMP to make sure that we keep that there. Talking about BC's most treacherous highways with my guest, Ward Stamer, Mayor of Barrier, BC. Right to your phone calls, Mark in Abbotsford. Hi, Mark, go ahead. How are you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, the the ideas that uh, the mayor had there for e-logs, dash cams, all of that is basically implemented in this country. The problem we have is with the e-logs, you have a gun to your head. You have to be at a certain location at a certain time or you are totally shut down. So that's why the speed has risen dramatically and drivers take chances they got to get their load through another problem we have is you leave vancouver with a load of produce and you're heading to edmonton you're right on the money to get there but if you're an hour late you will get a one thousand dollar fine from the grocery house don't care what grocery chain you want to talk about they all do it it's a way that they make money back off their loads so all e-logs have done, and they have been around for a while, and I would say 90% of the country already has them in their fleets. I've been doing this 45 years. A dash cam will only take a picture of the incident. The e-log is just another means of recording the time. It hasn't changed the law. But what's changed is the pressure drivers are under, and we don't have infrastructure where they can stop. The mm. closest truck stop to Vancouver is Hope. Right. So if you get to Hope and you have to deliver a load of 
whatever in the morning, you've got two hours into the city, you have unloading time, then you have a reload time. And at best, you're going to get back to maybe merit. You can't make a living at that. Okay, and Mark, thank you. For... park in the lower mainland. Mark, thank you for the call. Ward, what do you think of his points? He's made some good points, but at the same time, uh, you know, for, for I don't know how to respond to with, with the groceries, finding them. I mean, I find that absolutely yeah. and, and But even saying that, uh, if you hook up a GPS system with these trucks, you can tell exactly how fast these trucks are traveling. And if they're, if they're stretching it to the point where they have the speed to get to that location, then obviously yeah. they're not doing proper cycle time. We had a logging company. We had, we had cycle times to our mills. If we exceeded that, uh, cycle time, that's fine. But if we also cut it, we were fined as well. So I don't know why we're mm. even having this conversation. Yes, it's a responsibility of the government to try to determine where these other truck stops are, but they're not just stopping in Hope. They're stopping all the way along the way as well. And if they okay. happen to go further than Edmonton, they can have passengers in their vehicle, and that passenger is not being on the clock. Mike and Langley. Hi, Mike. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Uh, great topic. Uh, the mayor makes some uh, excellent points. Uh, and that prior caller, I understand his concerns, but you know what? Uh, those are excuses. You're putting the public at risk, uh, you know, for, the, for the, the consumption of them to go from A to B. But my point I wanted to make is that we used to drive that very road, and uh, we used to go up to Heffley Lake, too, so we never had to deal with the uh, choke point there because you just get off the highway. But uh, we have a place in the Caribou that we go to, and we used to go that route. But there's two things that we don't like about it. You can do 150 kilometers an hour on the coke, like, you know, they just fly by. But getting up into that choke point, uh, the, the guys that are driving their commercial trucks drive them like sports cars. It's crazy <laughs> and how fast they're going. And I understand they want to make a dollar, but you know what? At the expense of the public, it's not worth it. We actually go to Fraser Canyon now. Uh, it still has its issues, but it doesn't have... Uh, some of the, you know, the same uh, choke areas. There's enough passing lanes uh, on the uh, road to the Fraser Canyon up past Cash Creek and that. So anyways, Mayor, thanks okay. for uh, raising that. Thanks. Mike, thank you for your call. we got a ton more calls here. I'll try to squeeze one more. And Chris in Surrey. Chris, you have 30 seconds. Okay, go ahead. Okay, to the first caller, if all the trucks drove the same speed, they wouldn't be speeding to undercut the next guy and make the paycheck. And number two, I've been working with truckers for 30 years in steel. And some of these newer drivers, they just don't care. And my solution is, you know, instead of the lane limits for speed and everything else, you know, variable speed corridors, easy solution. If you got a class one, you're driving a big rig and you're caught speeding, you lose your license forever. Chris, thank you for thank you for the call. Ward, we could do the whole show on this. We got more calls coming in. We'll just have to have you back. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks very much, Mike. Let's talk food price inflation now. Everyone knows you go to the grocery store these days, the sticker shock at the checkout almost seems like you can drop a hundred bucks in the express line. Fifteen items or less. Prices have gone up so much. The price of food galloping ahead of the overall inflation rate in the economy. Why? Why are grocery store prices going up? So much. Well, the grocery store chains, of course, say they have cost pressures of their own. Politicians in Ottawa not buying it, though. They are calling big grocery on the carpet here. The CEOs of Canada's major grocery store chain summoned to Ottawa to testify in front of a parliamentary committee. Got NDP MP Jenny Kwan standing by. Have a listen to this here first from Global News about the impact 
on grocery store prices, including an uptick in shoplifting from grocery stores. Have a listen. As sky-high grocery prices take a big bite out of shoppers' bank accounts, it appears more people are resorting to supermarket shoplifting. It doesn't surprise me because food is really expensive and people need to eat. Concrete data is hard to come by because many cases go unreported, but one industry insider says the cost is substantial. The average grocery store will lose anywhere between two to $5,000 worth of food every single week. Sylvain Charlebois says food thefts have risen 40% in the last six months, calling it a sign that Canadians are fed up with grocery companies. If you go back a few years ago with the bread price fixing scheme, nobody went to jail, nobody was fine. Uh, the hero pay scandal, which happened uh, during COVID. And now with, uh, with food inflation being over 10%, people are upset. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Jenny Kwan, NDP MP, Vancouver East. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Jenny, thank you for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. What are you hearing from your constituents? What are people telling you about the price of food? Well, people are really struggling uh, on the ground. Uh, And, of course, the price of food has skyrocketed. Uh, Their income has not kept up to pace. Uh, And so, consequently, people are desperate to get support. We're seeing more people use the food bank uh, than ever. Uh, And the prices are just going up and up and up. And people are just struggling to make ends meet. Yeah, and we heard in that report there about the price of food up 10% last year, bigger than the overall inflation rate. So the price of food galloping ahead of the overall inflation rate in the entire economy. Why do you think that is? I mean, when you talk to the grocery store chains, well, you know, we've got our own cost pressures here. The price of gasoline is up. The supply chain, come on, give us a break here. We're not gouging people. What do you think? Well, I think that... um there's a different story that needs to be looked at. And what the NDP is calling for is for the Liberal government to take action to tackle what we call greedflation. Uh, and so the motion that my colleague uh, MP Alistair McGregor has moved uh, is to, in fact, investigate grocery chain profits. When you look at yeah. the situation, grocery prices have gone up, uh, you know, 10 percent, 11 percent, you know, and that's what we're seeing on the ground. But since 2019, food and beverage retail profit has grown by 120 percent with a net income of $2.8 billion. Food manufacturing profit has increased by 47 percent with a net income of $2.4 billion dollars. So really, I think grocery store giants are making massive profits at the expense of everyday Canadians at a time when people are struggling to make ends meet and to put food on the table. We need to deal with that. What we call greedflation is real, and it is a significant driver of the situation right now for food prices. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about those grocery store giants. And the committee in Ottawa has now summoned CEOs of grocery stores to Ottawa, answer questions in front of this committee. And I thought it was interesting to see all political parties here supporting this mission, liberals, conservatives, NDP, Bloc Québécois, everyone in agreement here to bring these CEOs to Ottawa to answer questions about this. What, What kind of answers do you want to hear from them? Well, first off, I have to say the NDP is really glad to see that the Liberals and the Conservatives and the Bloc are finally agreeing with us that corporate greed is a problem. And so we need to um, get to 
uh, give some explanation. How is it possible that if they say that the cost of food production has increased, you know, with all these factors that they cannot control, how is it possible then that their profit has jumped far exceeding the rate of inflation? Like the numbers don't add up. Right. And so we need to figure this out. And the truth of the matter is, is that what we're seeing, I think, uh, is is creation in full flight and people are hurting. People are hurting and people can't afford the food. They can't afford to live. And meanwhile, you have CEOs and corporate giants making record profits. And this is okay. not okay. Well, Okay, so when we, what is greedflation in your mind then? Does, does that mean that there's price fixing going on? There's collusion going on between these big grocery store chains or there's, there's gouging at the, at the cash register? Like, is that what you think is happening here? Well, I think uh, there's gouging uh, at the register. Um, to be sure, if you look at the situation, um, you know, the rate of inflation and the cost of the food far exceeds the rate of inflation. Uh, and then you match that up with their record profits. Something is awry. Why is there such record profits? Uh, and when the cost of the production and, and the food uh, is not at that level. So, so you have to sort of look at this in a holistic way to know that something is awry, something does not add up. And uh, if uh, these giants are not making record profits if they're not gouging people, uh, you know, at the uh, grocery stores. Then uh, why are they making these record profits? Where's the record profits coming from? Uh, and so I think we do need to look at that. We need to uh, put measures in place uh, to ensure that, for example, what the NDP wants to see is a excessive uh, profiteering tax to put in place to force yeah. CEOs and big corporations to pay what they owe. Um, to Canadians by closing the tax loopholes that they have. You know, they, have, they can access offshore accounts to stash their money away without paying uh, their fair share of Canadian taxes. I mean, this okay. is outrageous. So we need to put some measures in place. Across the globe, by the way, this windfall tax uh, is being put in place. Canada can do the same. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about that, this sort of excess profit tax that the NDP are proposing. So how would this work? You would tax tax these big grocery store chains, and then what would you do with the money? Well, the money needs to go back to support the people. I mean, look, at there's a million places where we can spend the money, uh, whether it be, you know, housing, the cost of housing, the inflationary cost of housing has skyrocketed. Uh, we can invest the money in housing to address the housing crisis that people are experiencing. Um, you know, people who are sleeping in tents, who are unhoused in our community. Look at the healthcare system. You know, we, we have a major need to address mental health support, for example. Yeah. Throughout the pandemic period, people struggle. People were isolated. Their mental health has been impacted. The Liberals promised that they would actually provide mental health support uh, as a standalone investment, as transfers to the province. Well, they didn't do that. We can invest that money in a whole variety of well, places to support uh, families. But if you bring the tax hammer down on these companies, is that not, don't they just pass it on to their customers? I mean, it just becomes another kind of input cost for these, for these grocery store chains. Would you not potentially risk the, the, the effect of actually driving 
grocery prices up even higher. Look at they've already driven grocery prices up to the point where it is out of reach for people. People cannot make ends meet. They cannot put food on the table. People are relying on the food bank. Other countries, by the way, across the globe have put in this windfall tax, this sort of profiteering tax, uh, and they are managing uh, just fine. The UN uh, Secretary General is actually calling on Canada to do the same, calling on countries to do the same, to support people through these tough times. So I don't see any reason why Canada can't do this. Uh, and, and, and I think there's a lot of reasons why Canada should do this. CEO and big corporations are making record profits. Let's be clear. They're making record profits. They're not hurting. They're not in a situation where that uh, the cost of them producing the product uh, is higher uh, than their, their profit margins. That is not the case. They're making record profits. And we need to ensure that there is an affordable and fair uh, uh, food strategy to tackle corporate right. greed. And we need to return some of that money to Canadians to support Canadians. We need to close the tax loopholes. I mean, Jesus, how is it possible that they can stash their money in these offshore accounts and not pay, pay Canadian taxes? And we think that is okay. okay. Do you have okay. an offshore account to stash your money away? No. No, I don't. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And why should they? And why shouldn't they be made to pay their fair share to Canadians? Okay, one thing is for sure, we are going to watch very closely to see what these CEOs say in Ottawa when they appear in front of this committee. So thanks, thank you very much for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.